Well, thank you so much this morning, Karen, Shelley, Wendy. Thank you very much, Kurt, Bill, and John, and Diane as well. Isn't it great to see Kurt back on the platform this morning? What a blessing it is to have our brother back with us. And let me just take a moment and pray for Kurt this morning. Father, we all feel blessed by the Janofskis, and we have been praying for Kurt, and we know this has been a season of struggle and difficulty for him and pain, and we're just so encouraged to see that you have worked in his life to the point where he could be back, uh, lending his very talented voice to you and leading us today. And we just continue to pray that you will strengthen and encourage him. We pray that your strong and mighty hand might be the healing touch that he needs. And we just continue to pray that you will bring him to full strength and health. And thank you, Lord, that we sense that he has helped us learn about how to suffer and to trust in God during that time and to be thankful for how God reaches out to us through his beloved people. And so um, we just continue to pray for your uh, perfect way in our brother's life. We pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said together, Amen. Don Shula is a Hall of Fame football coach. And uh, one day he and his wife were vacationing in Maine. I know somebody from Maine. And um, they went to a little theater to watch a movie. And when they uh, entered, all of a sudden, the, the little group of people that was in there just spontaneously began to applaud. Well, as the Shula sat down, uh, Don said to his wife, I guess there isn't any place where I'm not known. And she said, yeah, I guess not. Well, a friendly man came over to shake his hand, and uh, Shula said to him, I'm surprised that you know me here. The man said, should I know you? (laughs) He said, we're just glad to see you. The manager said he wouldn't start the movie until 10 people showed up. Can we all take our index finger and our thumb and do this? There's nothing as humbling as having your ego unexpectedly trimmed to size, is there? Here's a man who clearly had a very oversized ego, Muhammad Ali. Look what he said. I am the greatest. I said that even before I knew that I was. One day he was on an airplane getting ready for takeoff, and uh, the stewardess reminded him to buckle his seatbelt. You know what he said? He said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. She looked right back and said, Superman don't need no airplane either. 
Can we all take our finger and our thumb and go shh? Can you imagine thinking of yourself like this? You know what's worse? Acting like it, right? I doubt there's anyone here today who would say something like this. But in a thousand ways, we can act like it every day, can't we? We might be here today and we would say, you know, I don't want to be great. I'm just glad who I am. But I would wager that we all want to be treated as great. The next time you are slighted, snubbed, or ignored, see how you react. Even the best of us feel irritated when we are not treated with the importance that we think we deserved. You know, just recently, here in Marquette, somebody unfairly tried to make me look foolish. And I could feel my blood boiling. How dare you try to make me look dumb in the presence of others? My ego was bruised. And I had to wrestle with this very thing. This morning, as we continue our series in the Gospel of Mark, Living in the Shadow of the Cross, Jesus is going to help us with this very thing. He's going to talk with us about true greatness. You know what the disciples are going to have today? They're going to have a experience. And you and I need that as well. And what we're going to see as we come to Mark 9 today is that Jesus gives us a contrast. He shows us what the world's way is, and then he shows us the Jesus way. And this morning, we'll look at the first two. The next one we will save until next week. Let's open our Bibles, shall we? And let's begin at Mark 9, starting in verses 30 to 32. And would you follow along in your Bibles this morning? And here's what God's Word says. If you'd like to use the Bible in the rack in front of you, just turn to the second gospel in the New Testament, find chapter 9, and we are putting in at verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And Jesus did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand. Uh, do you know this is the only time, this word means ignorant? It's the only time in the Gospel of Mark the word ignorant is used. The disciples did not understand. They were ignorant of true discipleship. But they were afraid to ask him. Let's bow in prayer together. 
Lord, ambition is not wrong. The desire to do great things is not wrong. It's just that we don't know how. All we know is what our sinful flesh teaches us and what our world around us says is the pathway to greatness. And we get on that path uh, trying to be something and someone, failing to understand that the world's way is never the Jesus way. And so teach us today that there is a way to be great in the eyes of God, but it is the way of humility. And we pray that you will give that to us as we learn today. For Jesus' sake, amen. Now as we open up the story here in verse 30, After the announcement about Jesus' identity, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, the major focus in the Gospel of Mark is Jesus' coming death. He is way in the north of Israel, and now he begins the first leg on his final journey to Jerusalem, the journey to the cross. And as they are journeying along, Jesus takes the opportunity to, for now the second time, predict his death and resurrection. In verse 31, the key word is the word delivered. Did you see that? Jesus says, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. That word delivered is used in another passage of Judas delivering Jesus over to the chief priests and the elders of the Jews. It is also used in the book of Acts of God handing Jesus over to death. Now, what's very interesting here is there is no agent that is indicated in Jesus' words. He does not say who is going to be the one who delivers him over, and we might assume, well, of course, of course we know who it is. It's Judas and it's sinful people. But we need to think again. Did you notice the word delivered here is in the passive? It is to be delivered. And in the Bible, when there is a passive and an agent is often not mentioned, Bible students will tell us it is a divine passive. So that the agent here is God who delivers Jesus over to be killed. Now, would you follow this? What Jesus is saying is this, I'm going to carry out the will of my Father, and I'm going to give myself to be killed, and three days later I will rise again. Do you know, this is very similar to what Jesus said in the discourse on the Good Shepherd in John 10, 18, when he said, no one takes my life from me. But I lay it down of my own accord, this charge have I received from my Father. 
Now, isn't it very curious here, the reaction of the disciples? As Jesus talks about God being the one to deliver him over to death, verse 32 says, they did not understand, but they didn't want to ask why. Can we just pause here for a moment? Sometimes the reason we don't understand is not because we can't. But we want to block out what we don't wish to see, right? Sometimes the reason we do not ask a question is because there's an answer we don't want to receive, right? Yeah. You see, the disciples here do not ask Jesus a question about this death that is coming because Jesus' words exploded their plans. Despite all that Jesus had been teaching them, they still thought when we get to Jerusalem on this final journey, the Lord is going to set up his kingdom. And all they can think about is what they are going to get. What they're going to get. Freedom. National sovereignty. Peace. Prosperity. Victory. High places of rank in Jesus' coming kingdom. And now Jesus says to them, I want you to understand all of that is going to be postponed. And I am going to die first and suffer first. Now what we need to see here this morning is there is a tremendous, tremendous contrast. This is the first mark of true greatness in the eyes of God. You see, the world's way is the way of getting. But Jesus' way is the way of giving. You see, as the disciples think about the coming kingdom, all they can think about is what they are going to get... But as Jesus thinks about the coming kingdom, he thinks first and foremost about what he will give. Do you remember the key verse in the Gospel of Mark? It is also the key verse in the life of Jesus. Let's uh, read it together again for just a moment. Would you please join me and read Mark 10.45 with me? For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is what it means for Jesus to live in the shadow of the cross. Please see that this morning. This is what it means for Jesus to live in the shadow of the cross. Now, did you know that when we come to these passion predictions by Jesus, when he says the Son of Man is going to be delivered over into the hands of men and they will kill him, that he is setting down a paradigm for all Christ followers. You see, if we read this and all we think about is what Jesus has said about himself, we have missed the point badly. 
We have missed the point badly. Jesus is setting himself forth as an example of authentic discipleship. That's what he's doing. And this is what he's telling us. Truly great disciples think not in terms of what they can get, but what they can give. And truly great disciples know that it is in giving that we prepare ourselves for truly and really being able to receive. You remember what Jesus said in Luke 6.38? He said, give and it will be what? Given to you. Good measure, pressed down, running over, so shall it be filled into your lap. For, said Jesus, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. An authentic discipleship is always and first and foremost in terms not of what we get. That comes later. God promises a blessing for those who learn to give. Several years ago, I was on a local TV program called Pastor's Profiles. This was in my previous ministry in my church downstate. And uh, the man who was interviewing me on that program was uh, the leader of a volunteer Christian ministry. And at the time, the majority of volunteers in that ministry, which uh, was a citywide ministry, came from our church. And so as we got together, of course, he was very grateful for all these volunteers that came from our church. And he asked me this question. How do you get people to volunteer in your church? Isn't that a great question? How would you answer that question? Here's the answer that I gave probably 20 years ago now. It's the answer that I would still give today. This is what I said to him. It is the result of one's walk with Christ. What I said to him is, it is an internal thing that only Jesus can produce. You see, if a person becomes a, a volunteer for Christ as a result of external pressure, you know how long that person will last? Very, very little time. But it is a result of walking with Christ and becoming like him. And when you do that, you want to give freely. You want to give freely. See, here's what happens. When you walk with Jesus, you begin to see his heart. You understand why it is that he came and you begin to imbibe what his mission was all about. And that changes you. And rather than going through life with a closed hand, you begin to live life with an open hand. 
Rather than living life with a clenched fist, you become a person who opens yourself to give to others. You see, here's what happens. When we see Jesus living in the shadow of the cross, and that grips our hearts, we want to live in the shadow of the cross as well. We want to live in the shadow of the cross as well. And rather than first beginning to think, what do I get? We start to think, how can I give? Now let's move along here in this passage. And notice what occurred next, starting in verse 33. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. By the way, can you please just for a moment enter into this emotionally? Does this just break your heart? Jesus has just said, I'm going to be delivered into the hands of sinful men, and I'm going to be killed. And what are these men doing? They're arguing about who's going to be the greatest. Brothers and sisters, sometimes when you read the Bible, you just got to weep. You got to weep. And then you look at yourself and you realize, I'm ignorant. I'm ignorant of this. And you got to weep over yourself. This is, a, this is a tragedy, a tragedy. But notice how Jesus continues. And he sat down and he called the twelve and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me alone, but him who sent me. Now here's the second mark of true greatness in the eyes of God, the world's way. Read it with me. Being first. What's the Jesus way? Being last. Being last. Did you know that the Jews in the first century were very caught up over the issue of rank? Rank was very, very important to them. In fact, uh, there's a German Bible teacher by the name of Professor Slatter, and listen to what he says about the Jews in Jesus' day. At all points in worship, in administration of justice, at meals, in all dealings, there constantly arose the question, who was greater? And estimating the honor due to each was a task which had to constantly be fulfilled and was felt to be very important. 
In fact, do you know the Jews would often discuss uh, who was going to be the greatest in heaven? Did you know that? They would have discussions about, okay, in heaven, once you achieve your pecking order, that's where you're going to stay, and those below you are going to stay below you. So the Jews would talk about who is going to be the greatest in heaven. And the disciples get caught up in the same thing. And the closer and closer they get to Jerusalem on this final journey, you know what they're thinking? Payday's coming. Payday's coming. Payday's coming. Who's going to be first? Peter, Andrew, James. Probably the nine are jealous of the inner three, you know, and where they had just been on the Mount of Transfiguration. And they're discussing rain. By the way, we don't have that problem, do we? That doesn't enter into our thinking, does it? Uh, When I was in um, high school, I would go to basketball games and football games, and the cheerleaders would have a cheer. Uh, And uh, they would be down front, and they would say, Who's number one? Who's number one? And we would say, We are! We are! I never, ever heard them say... Who's number two? Who's number two? Who's number two? There's no cheer like that, is there? I think they know they wouldn't get much of a response, right? You see, everybody wants to be a winner. Nobody likes being a loser. We want to be on top. We hate being on the bottom. And here's the problem. We often attach that to our personal lives. We want to be seen as important. We want our ego to be stroked. We try to be on top. We want to seek important positions that will enhance our status. We seek to be recognized. We're upset if we're overlooked. We don't like, we, we, we definitely want others looking up to us. And we often court the attention of the wealthy, the popular, or the impressive. You know what I would do when I was a teenager? If I would go to an event and there was a kid there who seemed to be cool in the eyes of others, I would want to hang with that kid so that it would splash over onto me. How many of you think rank was important to Jesus? Look what he said. Verse 35. He sits them down, and whenever a rabbi sits down, it's time to learn. He calls the twelve, they get around him. And this is what Jesus had to say about rank. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all, and servant of all. Now let me tell you what Jesus does not mean by this. He does not mean we should not seek to improve our status in life. He is not condemning ambition. 
He does not mean we should be spineless Christians who do not stand for anything or make any demands. He is not saying we ought to give up our positions of authority in the home, in the family, or at church. And he is not saying we should never take time for ourselves and just burn ourselves out by becoming overcommitted. And all God's people said, thank you, Pastor, for clarifying that. What does Jesus mean? The key is the word servant. When Jesus says, if you want to be first, you must be last of all and servant of all, the key to what he means here is in the word servant. Now, follow me closely here. This is not the Greek word doulos, which was a slave in a servile position with no rights or authority. This is the word diakonos, from which we get the word deacon. It literally meant a waiter, one who serves food and drink. The word meant one who meets the needs of others. Now follow this. Being last of all means... We use our position not to serve ourselves, but others. Great leaders, then, are servant leaders. They use their authority not to advance themselves, but they use their authority for the benefit of others. There are a number of us here at Bethel who are currently reading one of the greatest books on Christian leadership of all time, Spiritual Leadership by J. Oswald Sanders. He was a great missionary leader who followed Hudson Hudson Taylor in leading the China Inland Mission. This is the 40th anniversary edition. There aren't many Christian books that are still around 40 years later. Listen to what J. Oswald Sanders says true greatness is. Look at what he says. True greatness, true leadership is achieved by not reducing men to one service, but in giving oneself in selfless service to them. And Jesus would say, You got it. You got it. Now Jesus is such a great teacher here that he drives home his point with an illustration. You may know that Jesus spoke Aramaic. And in Aramaic, the word for child is the same word for servant. So when Jesus takes this child up in his arms to illustrate what he has just said, he is making a huge, huge statement. Do you know in that society, children were the most insignificant people in society? You see this little child right here? He could do nothing for Jesus. 
Absolutely nothing. We see this and we think, oh, Jesus and the children, Jesus and the children. Why, of course, why, of course, why, of course. But in that society, an important person like Jesus would have never had anything to do with children. They were considered on the low level like a slave. And then Jesus drives home his point. As I'm receiving this child, so every believer must receive other believers. That's the point. There is to be no thought of precedence, power, influence, or superiority. There is to be no, what can you do for me? There is never to be this attitude that somehow ordinary or poor Christians are bothersome or unworthy of my time, but rather we are to receive Christ's people not for what they can do, but for who they are. Do you see that, child? That's not about children. That's about the most ordinary, insignificant Christian you will ever meet. And how you treat them when you meet them. By the way, did you notice how Jesus elevated this humble service to the most humble believer? Did you notice what he said? He said, whoever receives a humble, insignificant, poor, and unnoticed believer receives me. And they don't even just receive me. They receive the Father who sent me. Now, you know what this is saying? Since Jesus lives in every Christian When we welcome them, we are welcoming Christ who serves us through that person. So in serving all other Christians, please follow this, we are serving the two members of the Trinity, Father and Son, who live in that Christian, and we might as well add the third, the Holy Spirit, who lives in the Christian as well. Therefore, this is why this is true greatness in the eyes of God, because the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are the greatest persons there are. Therefore, when we serve the people they are indwelling, we are serving them. This can be no greater service that can ever be rendered. And that's why true greatness is never, ever being first. It is always willing to be the servant of all. Think about this. I'm going to take time to listen to my wife so that I can understand her. I'm not just respecting her. I'm respecting the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who indwells her.
How dare I think what she has to say to me is not important, right? Right? When I go out to the parking lot and we're getting ready to get in the vehicle and I open the door for her, I'm not opening the door just for her. I'm doing it for the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who indwells her. When I'm sitting in a board meeting and somebody says something that just seems off the wall, and I am patient towards them and respectful, I'm not doing that for them alone. I'm doing it for the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who indwells them. See, that's what true discipleship is about. Most of you know that I went to Dallas Theological Seminary, which is one of the most prestigious seminaries in the world. At the time I was there, it was the fourth largest seminary in the world. How they let me in, I have no idea. In the early days of that seminary, in the 20s, it was not as prestigious to be a professor there. In fact, you know what the professors had to do? They, they had to work a second job just to keep the seminary financially afloat. You know what one professor's second job was? the campus garbage collector. Think about this. During the day, he was the prestigious professor teaching Greek and Hebrew and church history and New Testament and Old Testament as he had on his fine suit and his wonderful tie. Then in the evening, he took all that off. He put on his overalls and he collected the garbage of the very students he had taught during the day. That professor, he was living in the shadow of the cross, wasn't he? Are you living in the shadow of the cross? Am I? See, if we're really living in the shadow of the cross, we will have humble, hidden places of service. If we are living in the shadow of the cross, as we walk with Jesus to his final destination, we will have hidden, humble places of service. Because that's what true greatness is about. Sometimes a summary is very helpful for us. And I found this summary from a pastor up in Canada. Would you read it with me as we close today? Join me, please. True greatness, 
according to Jesus, is a willingness to humble oneself by serving others. May God help us to live in the shadow of the cross. Bow with me. Maybe you're here today and you're not even sure you know the Jesus that the Bible is talking about. Maybe you recognize this is not the way that you have lived. And maybe you even feel a certain conviction of sin. If that's true, it's a good thing. Because it may well mean the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart. And you have a decision to make. You can join Jesus on the journey of living in the shadow of the cross until he comes again. Or you can continue to live this life on your terms and in the world's way. And in the end, by getting and being first, you will lose and be last. And Jesus is offering a better way. And maybe right now, in the quietness of your heart, you're ready for that better way. Maybe you've made a mess of things in your relationships and you know much of it is because of your own self-centeredness. And you'd like Jesus to come and live within you that he might change you. You could trust him now as your Lord and Savior. You could say something like this from, from your heart to his, Oh, Lord Jesus, I've failed, I've sinned, but I believe you are who you said you are. You died for my sins and you rose again. And right now I'm repenting. You may say to him from your heart, I'm turning from my own way and I'm turning to you. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus, and be my Savior. Come into my life, Lord Jesus, and be my Lord. Forgive me of my sins. Give to me the gift of eternal life. Make me a child of God. And you can say, Lord Jesus, from this day forward, God now helping me. I'm going to live for Jesus. You may say, thank you, Lord Jesus, for saving me. And then for us who know the Savior and have trusted him, when we read about 
Christ being delivered into the hands of sinful men, suffering and dying and then being risen three days later. Do we understand this is the way of true discipleship? It's about giving first and getting later. It's about being last and a servant leader. And then one day, in God's eyes, in his timing, making us first. And are we living with an open hand or a closed hand? Is our fist clenched? Or are we truly living in the shadow of the cross and what it means in following Jesus? And however God may be speaking to you today, whether it's in your marriage, whether it's in your home, whether it's on your job or here at Bethel, what is God saying to you? And how would you respond? Lord, the Bible's never given for information. It's always given for transformation. We cannot come in the way we were and leave the same way. You call for a decision. We give that to you today, for Jesus' sake, amen. It's always important for you to know that the first person that I preach to in this church is me. And this is not an academic exercise for me. God has not spoken to me through this, I have no right to be standing before you and trying to speak to you. And so I'm thankful for what God has done for me as I've looked at what Jesus has said. Let's continue to pray for one another and help each other that we might be Jesus' people in this world. I love this final song. It's really another one that's at the heart of what it means to follow in the Jesus way. And I would invite our wonderful praise team to come and to lead us as we get to the chorus of the second stanza. We will be dismissed today. Let's sing together from our hearts to the Lord.